You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. You know, for most major decisions in our lives, we can identify a pivotal moment. It might have been the moment when, quote, the straw broke the camel's back and you finally quit that job that you've been thinking about quitting for a while. It might be the moment that you learned some important information and it tipped the scales in which direction you were going to go in your study or in the career that you would choose. It might have been that incredible date that you had with your significant other or an incredible conversation and you knew in that moment this was the person you were going to spend the rest of your life with. However, in all of those moments, you were already headed towards that decision, right? I mean, in that moment, you finally said, that's it, I'm quitting. You were already looking for a reason to quit, weren't you? When you had that date or you had that conversation, you said, this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. You were looking for that significant other. You were looking for that person that you were going to marry. When you made that decision about which career you pursue or which degree you would get, you were trying to figure out what the direction of your life would be. And so you're on that course, you're headed down that path, and then there's that moment, that key moment when you turn towards the right direction, the right home stretch. In John chapter 20, we see this moment happen for John. He's been leading us to this point throughout his gospel, throughout the story of Jesus' life, even through the final moments that the disciples had with Jesus, even as they're watching him die. John's leading us to this moment that takes place. And so read with me, starting in John chapter 20 and verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, the grave where Jesus had been laid and been put there by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and seeth the stone taketh away from the sepulcher. And today we typically are buried in the ground and they cover it with dirt or put into a crypt and they place a cap over it. They often would place someone in a, in a hewn out place in a rock and they would roll a large stone in front of it. And she comes and there is no stone. It's been moved out of the way. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John refers to himself throughout the whole gospel. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, out of the grave, and we know not where they have laved him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together, and the other disciple did, disciple did outrun Peter. I've always found it interesting that John includes this little anecdote that he got there first, that he outran Peter. Verse 5, And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. So John arrives at the grave first. He's looking in the doorway. He can see that there the grave clothes that Jesus were wearing. They're laying there, but he hasn't go in yet. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And verses 7, 8, 9 are important. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself, then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. 
John is standing there at the opening of the grave. He's looking at Jesus' burial clothes laid there, and he's waiting for Peter. Peter arrives, they come in, and they can see that the napkin or the wrap that would have gone around Jesus' face, that it had been laid elsewhere neatly. And that detail, that little moment, is the moment for John that he comes to believe. Now, John already believed in Jesus, but it was in this moment that he came to believe in the resurrection. That detail made it compelling for John. That this napkin that was about Jesus' face, that it hadn't been discarded or thrown or hadn't been laid out, but rather that when Jesus got up, that he had taken it off and laid it down neatly in this place by itself. And for John, that moment was kind of the, just everything came together and he came to believe that Jesus had not been moved, his body had not been stolen, he'd not been relocated, but rather Jesus had raised from the dead. That was a big deal. Because John tells us here in verse 9, they didn't really fully understand the Scriptures yet. Now when John is writing this down later, he's giving us this account. He has a more perfect understanding of all the Scriptures that have been pointing towards this moment. But in real time, when he's living through it, this is all new to him. But that detail, that moment, made everything compelling and clear to John. Now, it's important that you understand that when this happens, when this takes place, that John doesn't come to believe something that's convenient. You know, there are things that we believe, and it's nice to believe them. It's convenient to believe them. But believing that Jesus rose from the dead would not be convenient to John. Rather, it would be rather inconvenient for him. The rest of his life would be altered because of this moment where he comes to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he has this culminating, final, clear picture that Jesus is the Son of God who's come to die for our sins and raise again. This conclusion that John comes to would lead to the death of many of his friends. It would lead to him being exiled and left alone. It would lead to to John turning his whole life upside down. It wasn't convenient at all. You know, people often die for something that is false, but it's because they've been convinced of a falsehood. But no one dies for something they know to be false. John was convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona have put it this way, the disciples' willingness to suffer and die for their belief indicates that they certainly regarded those beliefs as true. The case is strong that they did not willfully lie about the appearances of the risen Jesus because liars make poor martyrs. Nobody dies for what they know to be a lie. And John, based on what he saw, what he experienced in this moment, became convinced. And there would be further revelations. Jesus would appear to the disciples later. And he goes on to tell us about it. But it's in this moment that he believes. And here's what I want you to see. 
John had walked with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, had listened to his sermons, has watched his miracles, he's watched him die. And now in this moment that we're reading about in the tomb, when he sees the napkin that was around Jesus' head, he comes to believe in the resurrection. And there would be many other moments after this where that would be confirmed and he would have a greater understanding. But all of that leading up to this moment and all that would come after this moment, this is kind of the pivotal point for John. He had that pivotal moment. And here's what I want to ask you today. Have you had that pivotal moment where you came to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That He is who He says that He is. That He died for your sins and mine and that He rose again. Now that Nicole and I have been married for 15 years and since we dated for several years before that, We've been together for more than half of our lives. And honestly, I can't even really imagine life without her. I don't even remember a period of life where she wasn't a part of it, and I can't imagine a future without her. It's like we've always been together. But if someone asks me if we're married, I don't say, well, I've always been married, because that would be weird. (laughs) Somebody asks me if I'm married, I don't say, well, my parents were married. And so now I'm married, because that wouldn't make any sense. I wouldn't say, well, you know, I I try to be married every day, and I feel married. None of that would make sense. Now I would say, yes, I'm married to Nicole. On June 19th of 2004, we stood in front of a large gathering of our family and friends, and we made public vows to one another. There was this moment. And though we were together for many years before that, and though we've been together after that, that's kind of the moment when that commitment was solidified. Similarly, the correct response to are you a believer or are you a follower of Jesus or are you a Christian is not, well, I've always been saved. It's not, well, my my parents were Christians. It's not, well, I've always gone to church. It's not, well, I try to be every day and I feel like I'm a good person. No, it, it, it needs to be. Yes, there was a moment in my life, there was this pivotal moment where I decided to follow Jesus. There was this moment that I came to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I came to believe that He died for my sins. I asked Him for forgiveness. There was this moment. Was there that moment for you? And no doubt there were moments before that that helped you come to that point, and there were moments after that helped you understand more clearly. But is there a moment? And perhaps you don't remember the exact date. I'll be honest, I did a little double-checking on myself to make sure I got the date of our anniversary correct. So the year was though I was trying to make sure. But can you think to a moment? John had that moment, and he's been leading us through the life of Jesus up to this point so that hopefully we'll do the same, that we'll come to a moment of belief. Look down at the last couple of verses of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John has given us the life story of Jesus, and he's kind of bringing it all to a close, and he says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? 
that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. John wants us to have that moment. He wants us to have that moment where we believe. The end of chapter 21, if you flip over a page and look at 21, 25, John there says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. John says, listen, I've tried to give you as, as comprehensive and robust a record as I could, but I couldn't write it all down. And so what John has done is he's built a case for us and he's given us these themes. He's given us Jesus' seven I am statements. Remember that Jesus would use these I am statements to connect himself to the God of Moses and Abraham, the God who appeared to Moses and said, tell the people, I am that I am. And Jesus would respond to the priest and say those exact same words and they would lose their minds that he would blaspheme God that way. But he also used all these statements that would tie him to that but gave us a better understanding or illustration of what kind of God he is. And so he says in John 6, I am the bread of life. That anyone who eats of me will never be hungry again. In John 8, I am the light of the world. That I have brought light into this darkness. In John 10, I am the door. I am the way of access. In John 10, a little bit later, he says, I am the good shepherd, the sheep. Know my voice and I know them by name. And I'm there to take care of them, not to take advantage of them. In verse or in number 5, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 11 and 6, he says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And in John 15, he says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. And so Jesus was clearly stating that he is God. And then he backs it up with all of these signs, these miracles, and John gives us seven of many that he accomplished John tells us in chapter 2 that Jesus changed water into wine at a wedding. He tells us in John 4 about healing this royal official's son who was sick. Sick In in John 5, he heals a man who's paralyzed at the pool of Bethsaida. In John 6, he feeds 5,000 and walks on the water. In John 6, or in John 9, he heals a man blind from birth. John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And in John 20, if he raises himself from the dead. And what he's doing is he's showing us again and again, I am who I say that I am. And I say that I am the Son of God. So John's built this thematic case for the person and power of Jesus. He's made it clear that Jesus is who he says that he is. And now John's in his closing statements. He's made his case and he's giving his final plea here. And he wants us to understand not only that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for our sins and rose again. He wants us to understand why all of this happened. You see, it's one thing to know what happened. It's another to understand why. Here's what you know happened. You ate too much turkey and pumpkin pie this week. You don't really know why, though. Last week I talked to you about the fact that Abraham Lincoln made Thanksgiving a national holiday and following that message, Nicole had some notes for me. Um, she said, you need to look at, you need to check out this book. And it was this book that she had read to her kindergarten students. And so I, I looked into the story, and it's the story of Sarah Hell, who, who wanted... 
Thanksgiving to be made a national holiday. And she had grown up in a family that celebrated Thanksgiving every fall, and she felt like it was something that every family should do. And so she was a writer, and in one of her novels, an entire chapter of the novel is dedicated to the tradition of Thanksgiving. She was an editor of a very popular women's magazine in her day. This is back during the time before the Civil War. And so she would write several editorials about why we need more holidays and we need a holiday of Thanksgiving. And she would write letters to governors and to presidents. And she wrote to like five different presidents trying to convince each one of them. And the week before Lincoln made the proclamation that Thanksgiving was a national holiday, she had written him yet another letter. And so she's kind of the mother of Thanksgiving. When Lincoln made that proclamation, she shifted her focus from getting it made into a national holiday to helping us all understand how we should celebrate Thanksgiving. And in her magazine, she wrote out recipes that we should use, and she's often credited with being the one who encouraged everyone at Thanksgiving to eat turkey and make pumpkin pie. So now you know not only that you ate too much turkey and pumpkin pie, you know why. It's because of Sarah Hale. Why? Why did Jesus do this? Well, I want you to notice some, some of these moments that take place after Jesus is risen from the dead. He appears to the disciples on two occasions. One in the upper room and all of the disciples are there minus Thomas and of course Judas who would no longer be considered a disciple. And then he appears again after Thomas is there with them and they are able to see the the nail prints in Jesus' hand. They're able to see the large gash in Jesus' side where he's been stabbed with a spear. But I want you to notice something that comes up again and again in these interactions. And we can't read all of these verses so let me just highlight verse 19. Jesus appears to the disciples, and if you have a Bible that has the writing of Jesus in red, you'll notice that in that verse there's the words in red, Peace be unto you. Jesus says this again in verse 21. Peace be unto you. This is said twice in Jesus' first interaction with the disciples in verse 26 when He's come back the second time and Thomas is there. He says... Verse 26, peace be unto you. Now, this phrase, peace be unto you, is a phrase that the Jews would often say. It's the phrase that Jews will often say, even unto this day, as a customary greeting, shalom aleichem. And the appropriate response is, aleichem shalom. And it means, peace be unto you. And aleichem shalom in response means, and unto you peace. This is probably a greeting that Jesus had used with the disciples on numerous occasions. But John records each one of these instances here. It'd be like suddenly including all of the times that you said, hey, how are you doing to everybody in your life story? John has told us that he's only given us the things that we really, he really wants us to see so that we could believe. And here he's giving us these customary greetings. Why? Because I think looking back on it, John could see that when Jesus said, Shalom Aleichem, that he could say it like nobody else. When we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict. Some of you were hoping for a peaceful Thanksgiving. What you meant is that your family didn't argue about politics. You're hoping for absence of conflict. 
But the Jewish idea of shalom is more than an absence of conflict. It's a presence of something better in its place. It's more than the world peace that often people dream or wish for. It's more than the absence of conflict. It's rather the absence of conflict and the presence of flourishing in its place. It's the absence of bad with the presence of good in its place. In the Old Testament, there were times that shalom was used to refer to a stone wall that was built correctly and had no defect. It was level. It was on the bubble. There was no crumbling stone. Everything was as it should be. It was a wall that had shalom. It not only had an absence of defect, but it also, because it was a wall around a city or a wall around a courtyard, it gave a place of safety and security. A place where you could grow your garden. Or a place where markets could be held without fear. In fact, the verb tense of shalom means to restore to wholeness. It means to take a wall that's broken down and rebuild it like Nehemiah did when the walls had come down. He restored shalom to the walls around Jerusalem. He made them right. And not only removed the defect from the wall, but he provided safety and security for the people dwelling within the walls. It means the same thing about a relationship. It means to take away the bitterness or the enmity or the anger that hangs in the air and to bring in its place a unity and a harmony. Shalom Aleichem. Aleichem Shalom. Peace be unto you and unto you be peace. That's what Jesus brought. And it's for that reason that when Isaiah prophesied of this baby who would be born one day in Isaiah 9.6, he said, For unto us... A child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Or the Prince of Shalom. The Prince who brings the restoration, who removes the defect, removes the conflict, and puts in its place safety and security and restoration. He's that Prince of Shalom. And then Jesus is born. And Mary and Joseph are tending to their newborn son, and they have no place to put him, and so they put him in a feeding trough or a manger with some hay so that there's a place for the baby to lay and sleep. And meanwhile, out in the fields, there's a group of shepherds, and they're keeping watch over their flock by night, and they are interrupted by an angel. The angel tells them that they go find Jesus, and that the sign will be that they will find a baby lapped wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And then suddenly, as we read earlier, the angel is surrounded with a heavenly host who sing, peace on earth, shalom on earth, goodwill toward men. The arrival of Jesus was the arrival of the shalom. And Jesus' final discourse with the disciples in John 14, 27, he says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, my shalom, I give to you. For this reason, Paul would write in his letters that Jesus came to restore a peace between God and man. He said this in several places in his letters, but he says it, I think, best in Colossians 1, 20 and 21, at least for our purpose this morning. He says, and having made peace 
through the blood of the cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, who are sometimes alienated and enemies in your own mind by your wicked deeds, He hath now reconciled. He has restored. He has brought shalom. And so Jesus keeps saying, Shalom Aleichem. The disciples are afraid. They're scared. Jesus' body has disappeared. They don't really know what that means. John has become to believe in the resurrection. But now Jesus shows up there in the midst of them and He keeps saying, Shalom Aleichem. He's showing them the nail prints in His hands and His feet. He's showing them the wound in His side. He's eating with them. He's embracing them. He's encouraging them to touch Him. And He's saying, Shalom Aleichem. And he's just saying the same thing that he said throughout his life. When Jesus was born, he was saying, peace unto you. When he left the disciples, he said, peace unto you. When he died on the cross, he was saying through his sacrifice, peace unto you. And now as he's resurrected, conquered death, hell, and the grave, he's saying, peace unto you. We've entered into the season where we will say things like, Have a Merry Christmas. Happy Thanksgiving. Have a great New Year. And even when it isn't this holiday season, we say things like, Have a great day. Oh, hey, that's great advice. Thank you. I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to try that today. It's this customary greeting that we have no power to make happen. I can tell someone to have a Merry Christmas, but I have no power to make that happen. Jesus appears to the disciples and He says, Shalom Aleichem. Peace unto you. And He had the power to make that happen. In fact, He had. That's what He did. He brought peace unto us. Shalom Aleichem. Would you bow your heads with me?